As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father. and You do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works of your, that your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I can, came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He's not standing the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Would you bow your heads with me, please? God, as we bow our heads now, my immediate prompting is to say, our Heavenly Father, words that carry weight always carry even more weight in light of this passage. I'm thinking about our own lineage, thinking about where we abide, thinking about whether we are a slave to sin or whether we have been freed by the Son and brought into your family, belonging to a new home, belonging to a new father. I thank you that this morning, if we have trusted Christ, if he has set us free, we are free indeed. We have every confidence to call you Father. May we not lose the weight of that. Lord, as we consider sin and what sin seeks to do to enslave us, and as we consider even the enemy of our souls and what he seeks to do to lie to us and even bring murder about in his plans, we thank you that you give us life. I pray, Lord, first that anyone in this room that might not know Jesus might come to know him from this passage. They might be prompted by what you've said, not by what I've said, or even what the testimony of somebody they might speak to after the service, but your word has power, has authority, has the ability to transform our hearts to, as we just sang, give us faith. And Lord, for your people, would you establish us? Would you call back the wanderers? Would you humble those of us who may say, I got this, I'm good. And would you bring glory to your son, I pray, in his name. Amen. The title this morning for our message is 
abiding in the truth and walking in freedom. And that, of course, coming from the beginning of what Jesus says in this section. But um, especially since we were away from the Gospel of John last week, um, a little recap of what we've seen in 7 and 8. Um, we're taking these two chapters and kind of making them a mini-series within the series of studying John of water and light. Jesus is at the Feast of Booths, the time when God's people gather together for a week to remember what God did for their ancestors and bringing them out of slavery in Egypt into the Promised Land and, and in between in the wandering in the wilderness when they lived in tents. And so the people, the, the people of God then would gather in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths and they would set up tents wherever they could find, inside homes, outside in the streets and on sidewalks, outside of the city even, to live as their ancestors did, to be reminded of the wandering in the wilderness that they did for 40 years. Jesus has taken a couple of the elements from this feast and brought them to light in his ministry. He hasn't used them to sort of say, hey, this is kind of like what I'm doing. He's actually said that when your ancestors followed the, sm the pillar of smoke by day and the pillar of fire by night, when they were given this wonderful light that, that led them everywhere they were supposed to go, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. When they would uh, do their sort of ritualistic um, practices in the morning during this feast involving water, Jesus also says that anyone who comes to him would have rivers of living water flowing out of their hearts. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, God's presence in their lives, and that he would give that to them. So he's been showing people throughout these two chapters that everything that God's done in the Old Testament has been done to point to his son. And that when Jesus comes, he's not just coming to remind them of how far they've wandered away from what God has said, though that is certainly part of it. But when Jesus refers to Old Testament things, he is using those things in, with the purpose of fulfillment in his own ministry and who he is as the Son of God. That Jesus does not just look back on, but he fulfills, he shows to be the purpose of all the things that were written and done beforehand as well. Come to him to drink freely of living waters. Come to him and have the light of life. And now today, as we come to this next part of his message, and, and this message that has been given largely to a non-believing crowd, a crowd that time and time again has shown a lack of faith. And you'll remember, I hope, from uh, later on in the Gospel of John, as we've referred to it in chapter 20, that John's purpose in writing is this, in this book is that we might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that what he is doing is making true disciples to follow him. He's bringing about his people out of people who need to be born again, who need to be brought to the light, who need living water. Every illustration, every way that Jesus has explained his mission and his message has been a message of saying, you have no hope apart from me. Without him, we are lost. We are dead in sins. We are... We're thirsty, we're hungry, we have no light. But in him we have all those things and even more. Now, 
with the title being abiding in truth and being that Jesus says this in verse 31, particularly the main part of his message that sparks the rest of the conversation. If you'd look down at it again with me, Jesus says in verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. We really want to focus on that word. You might remember from a couple of years ago, now we took some time um, in 1 John, and really that word abide, John the apostle really likes that word and used it a lot in his letter to the churches. And we certainly can see right here why he liked it. Something about what Jesus said here that the Holy Spirit led John to write in his gospel of Jesus. Um, John then goes and implements in his first and biggest letter to the church um, quite often. But what does this word abide mean? It's not really something that we say. You know, you don't meet somebody and say, hey, do you abide in Lima? Right? But that's essentially what it means. Where is it that you make your home? It's a pretty basic thing. I don't imagine that you wake up every morning and go, this is where I abide. This is my home. This is what I'm all about. Right? And probably not. It's, it's a very routine part of our day. And, and interestingly enough, is, uh, of course, we want to shine light on this idea of where we abide if we abide in God's word. And we want to make it more than what we kind of make it every day. But we also don't want to lose the fact that, that Christ does want to be a part of our everyday, right? Our everyday dealings, your normal rhythms of life are not things that Jesus looks at and says, I don't really care what you do as long as you show up on Sunday, and when I send you somewhere you go, and when you read your Bible that you listen. and no, He wants to be a part of every aspect of your life because he's worthy of that. And so something like his word, something like what he has said, that we talk often about the word of God, and I think rightly so. Certainly when Jesus talks about it, we ought to talk about it. We talk about it as having authority, having power of being inspired by God. Peter told us a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago now actually, as we were thinking about the preservation of God's word in the beginning of John 8, the end of John 7, Peter tells us in 1 Peter that the Holy Spirit carried along the authors. That they did not just write of their own free will, though they were a part of the, the process. The Holy Spirit was the one giving the words to them and directing them in this process. So the word has a great authority in our lives. It has a great power. It has a great purpose. And so it should. But it's also, in one way, it's a reminder to us of what our home truly is. And I wonder if I could pose that question to you this morning. That when you open up God's word, do you find a world that is familiar to you or unfamiliar? Is it, is it a reminder of something that perhaps sometimes we feel, oh, I've, I've kind of wandered. I, I've forgotten that God has spoken to me. Or is it something that we look at and we go, I don't really get this. It doesn't carry a whole lot of weight in my life. And, and maybe I'll look at it here and there or, or remember something about it from my childhood. It's been a while since we've done a Lord of the Rings illustration. And I know you've missed them. In the two towers, while Frodo and Sam are on their way to Mount Doom to destroy the Ring of Power and to bring everything right in the world, they're scaling down this mountain. I don't know if this is in the books. It's in the movie, at least, and that's all I care about. Um, they're scaling down the mountain, and Sam, who is at the top, Frodo's kind of further down, um, Sam drops this little tiny box, and he goes, oh, Mr. Frodo, catch it. And he, he catches it really quick, and Sam's relieved, and he gets down, and he's like, what? what in the world was so important? And he opens it up, and he's like, it's salt. Really, just salt? 
Why, why was this so important? And, and Sam says, no, that's not just any salt. Like, that's, that's some of the best salt from the Shire. And as, as he explains that, and Frodo's still kind of on his face, he kind of looks, he's like, that's still insignificant. I'm, I'm carrying the ring of power that could destroy the whole world, and you care about salt? But he kind of also hears in Sam's voice the significance of it. And so Frodo responds, oh, it is special. It's a little piece of home. So a reminder to them of where they came from and what they're fighting for and what all of this hopefully will amount to is a return to home. So what reminders of home do you carry with you daily? And I mean of where you truly abide. If you're in Christ, this world isn't your home. This is where you're staying. It's a sojourn, if you will. It's an in-between, but it is not your true home if you are in Christ. So what do you carry with you that reminds you of that? I would call you this morning to carry God's word with you. Now, you might say, okay, great. So this Bible's pretty big here, but I can get the app on my phone. Boom, word of God in there in my pocket, carrying it with me. Sermon application complete, right? That can't be what we're talking about. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, verse 31 and verse 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The one who abides in the word is the one who believes. This is why we jumped back to verse 30, even though we read it last time. We read verse 30 again because John tells us that as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And at the end of that paragraph, sounds really good. It sounds like Jesus is finally getting through to some of these people. But what do you find as soon as we come to the passage here in verse 31? He says to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. You know the truth. The truth will set you free. And they answer him, we're offsprings of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say we'll be set free? Clearly, these people who are responding to Jesus are not believing in the way that Jesus is is trying to call them to. If you would recall Jesus' mission again, his mission is not to the crowd, but to an individual. All of you, as you gather on Sunday morning, cannot collectively respond to the word of God. I mean, you can. But what God's calling you to do in these matters is to open your own heart and examine it before his word. To see what, whether, as he, as he put it, whether his word has a place in you or not. And whether you abide in it. His mission is to the individual. He has time and time again, think back to John 6 is perhaps the most significant, when there was a multitude coming to hear from him and wanting to make him king and hearing his word and seemingly believing it. And he says, hey, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you have no part in me. And they go, all right, I'm out. It's got really weird, really fast, Jesus. It's going really well. And then you talked about eating flesh and drinking blood. This is not what I'm into. Jesus said those things to basically reveal who was truly following, who truly would be a disciple of Christ, who would abide in the word. Last week, uh, Tim's message was anchored in Christ and finishing well, beginning to end, persevering. What Jesus is calling us to is not simply to hearing the word and saying, okay, that sounds okay, or, or believing on a surfacey level, but actually letting the word sink down into our hearts and transform us. To do more than us just giving mental assent, but to actually hear with the intent of being changed by God's word. 
And I hope that's your intention on a Sunday morning. I hope that's your intention on a Monday through Saturday as well. But for instance, and for the sake of illustration, how do you leave church on Sundays? I mean, I will be honest and embarrassingly honest with you. Sometimes I leave church and I'm like, I'm ready for the couch. Didn't sleep well last night. I'm hungry. You know, all those things flood my mind. And I, even though often I'm standing on this side of the music stand, am ready to sort of believe on a surfacey level and say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to put you away and I'll see you later, but I need a break for a while. I want to go live somewhere else. I need a vacation from home, from where I make my home. That's not what he's calling us to do. He's calling us to deeply drink of the word that he's given us and to respond in a way that shows its power. Not that we're developing the power of God. If that was true, I need to find another job. We don't, we don't create the power of God in his word. We submit to it. We discover it inside of what Jesus has spoken to us. So true disciples are those who abide in the word of Christ and are a part of the family of God. If we are true disciples, then the marks of discipleship, primarily genuine, transforming faith, will remain as we abide in his word. And as Jesus says, those who are slaves to sin, which is everybody until Jesus does something for them to change their situation, those who are slaves of sin do not abide forever, but the Son does abide forever. He makes a stark contrast throughout his conversation with these hearers about who he is, what he has to offer, where he came from, and who they are, what they have to offer, and where they truly came from. You know, it's interesting as we live in the age that we do of social media, and in some ways we know more about people than we ever have, and in other ways we know so much less about people than we ever have, right? We can know so easily everything that somebody does, everything that somebody might say. So long as it's recorded on a social media platform, it's there forever. And what we see largely is people valuing moments and experiences, right? Sometimes things, a lot of times things, right? I got a new car, I got a new house, I got a new this, I got a new phone, I got... But, but the things that we perhaps envy the most in some cases are, are the experiences that we see other people having, right? You, you get that friend who says, 10 more days until vacation. You're like, oh my goodness, I got to mute you because I can't stand 10 days of you going nine days until vacation, eight days until vacation, seven days until vacation. And then they finally get there in the pictures and they're having a wonderful time. And it's all these experiences, these little micro moments of life that you can't live in, that you can't truly abide in. That you can't truly make your home. I mean, this, we, <laughs> our last family vacation last year, we left and my five-year-old was basically just like, why can't we just live at this hotel? Well, there's a lot of reasons. This isn't our home. It's the main one. This isn't where we're supposed to be. This is just a moment. Where we live is what truly matters. And Christ is calling us this morning to consider whether we truly abide in his words or if his word is sort of like just a momentary experience. that You might say like, oh, Sunday morning or, or, or Tuesday afternoon or Wednesday night. I had a, had a moment of experiencing God's word. But, but what he's actually calling us to do is to abide in it. 
And the problem we need to realize with that is the same problem that Jesus reveals to his hearers. His hearers want to change the subject. Okay, he's talking about, hey, abide in my words so that you can truly be my disciples and the truth will set you free. What is the thing that we're called to in that? Are you being called set yourself free? No. Are you being called discover the truth on your own? No. You're being called to abide in the word of truth and the word of Christ. But what their focus is, is the end thing, the end result. How can you say you will become free? We are Abraham's offspring. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Now, you might read that on a surfacey level and say, wow, you do not know your uh, Old Testament history very well, you listeners. Uh, you've never been enslaved to anyone. If you're talking about your people throughout history, how about 400 years in Egypt? How about not long after you got into the promised land? I mean, the book of Judges. How about the exiles? How about right now under Roman rule? Sometimes the crowds are not very smart, but in this case, I think it's better for us to understand that these crowds are not talking about physical, political bondage so much as the spiritual slavery that Jesus is promising to save them from. They needed to realize that slavery to sin left no room for the word of Christ that he was bringing to them. Jesus reveals the nature of their belief in this. Now, again, this is an interesting passage to study. And again, coming back up to verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is not to say that everyone who believed in him only believed on a shallowy level. But those who respond clearly have a little bit more to understand about true faith, right? He's calling them to abide, to remain, to endure, to not move from one thing that Jesus said and said, say, that sounds good, and then come to the next one and go, no, I'm out. That's not okay. And this has been the pattern of this sort of shallow belief in the Gospel of John. It is I'm coming to a place where I hear, wow, God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. I like that. You're going to have to die to yourself, take up your cross, and follow me daily. I don't like that. Christ wants you to endure from the first part of that message, which the one I gave is probably not a great example because we don't really understand what God means when he says he has a wonderful plan for our lives because he does have a wonderful plan. It just may not be what our definition of wonderful is. And particularly as you abide and make your home with Jesus, you'll realize, wow, there's some things that I didn't know. And, and I'm faced with the decision, am I going to stick around with this? Um, in Sunday school this morning, Tim was talking about how that, that first year, that honeymoon season of marriage, where everything seems to just be new and fresh and so wonderful, and we're getting along so well, and, and this is paradise, and, and then pretty soon it, it breaks, and you realize, oh, you're a different, you're not just a carbon copy of me, you're your own person, and you're a person that, for however long we dated or were engaged, I mean, I didn't know you at all, it seems. And when we come to a place of saying, I'm going to commit my life to Christ and live as a Christian, it can often be that same experience. That after, and it doesn't take long, does it? After a short period of time of walking with Christ, or going to church, being a part of Bible studies, learning a little bit more about this word that we're supposed to abide in, we discover there's some things in this that I don't really think I like. I certainly didn't sign up for these specifics. Let's consider the alternatives. Because Jesus' warning this morning is heavy. There is a hopelessness of slavery for those who do not abide in his word. And at one point, we were talking about every single person who ever walked the earth, save one. 
We are all born in sin and born slaves to sin. Look with me again, if you will, at verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That word practice is really important when we understand what the Bible is telling us about sin and our relationship with it. When Jesus says those who practice sin, he's talking about people who are making a regular engagement with sin on a daily basis. Who are in one sense, we might say, diving headfirst without any caution, without any consideration. And that's true, and that's something that we can kind of remind ourselves, like, okay, so if I, if I sin, that doesn't mean that I'm necessarily a practicer of sin, because if it's an isolated incident, I might see that in it I was you know, tired, hungry, angry, you know, the circumstances brought me to a place where I was not abiding in Christ, and sin hit me in the face, and I hardly saw it coming. And yet at the same time, as we consider whether I'm practicing sin, there's another word that the Bible uses and talks about committing sin. I think it's an interesting word for us to consider in today's use of committing, right? We think about commitment, of, of clinging to something and saying, I'm committed to what? My wife, my job, my home, my family, my this, my that, my hobbies. I'm committed to them. And the Bible would tell you that committing sin is to commit to sin just as much as it is to trip up and accidentally find yourself in the middle of it. Committing sin is to commit to it. That, that, that difference between slipping up and making a mistake and coming to a point of practicing sin, the gap between those two is a lot smaller than you think it is. Because it's easy for us to take an isolated moment and say, oh, wow, okay, I just realized I've disobeyed God in this and immediately want to comfort ourselves and say, it's okay, not a slave to sin, wasn't a practice, wasn't a normal thing, it was weird, it was an isolated... Don't be so quick to comfort yourself about sin. Do comfort yourself about sin in the right time, right? Peter tells us to humble ourselves before God so at the right time he might lift us up at the right time. But start with a place of humility. Because even though my sin is dealt with at the cross, Jesus still had to deal with it at the cross. And every time I slip up or dive into a practice of sin, I'm reenacting the reason that Jesus had to die. It doesn't lose any of its power just because it happened 2,000 years ago. Well, those who are slaves to sin are unwilling to admit their slavery to sin, right? You see that right off the bat in their response. How can you say we will be set free? We have not been enslaved to anyone. And if we're thinking here that they're thinking spiritually then they're talking about sin. We have never been enslaved to sin. Why? Because who is our father? Abraham. Abraham is our father. Therefore, I know I have never been a slave to anything else. I'm a child of Abraham. What's behind this culturally is the matter of freedom through lineage, that because I can trace generations back, perhaps all the way to Abraham, you think those genealogies that you read in the Old Testament, you know, that you're like, oh boy, I think I can skip this whole chapter of Leviticus today because that was all just genealogies and I don't get it. It meant so much to its original audience. Your genealogy was everything, where you came from. And God wanted his people to remember where they came from, but he didn't want them to trust in where they came from. And that's what's going on here. 
Their understanding was that they were free through lineage and that they were free through study. They were free through their knowledge of the word. How much of it was up here? What was it that they comprehended? How many Bible verses could they rattle off? What kind of good theology could they spew back at somebody saying something like, I can set you free if you'll abide in my word? See, they thought in this very moment they were giving evidence of their true rightness with God and they've already attained freedom. Hey, we've been ready for this. We are children of Abraham. Therefore, I know I've never been slave to anyone. I've got the promise of God through Abraham. There's nothing that can take me away from that because I am, by my heritage, God's people. Well, Jesus responds, of course, and says, yes, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, but Abraham is clearly not your father. You are not children of Abraham. This is kind of an interesting thing, too, as you think about Abraham's own family, right? When God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Sarah's going to have a son. I've got everyone, all the nations of the earth will bless you, and they will be blessed by you, and everyone who curses you will be cursed. All these great promises. And what does Abraham and Sarah do for their first part of their plan Sarah says, hey, I'm way too old to have kids. Why don't you take my servant here and she can bear a child for you? Immediately, there's a reason for them to think back and say, hey, maybe trusting in Abraham isn't totally the right thing to do. The Bible does tell us that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed God. There were times that he didn't believe God, of course. And so when Jesus says, hey, I recognize that you are offspring of Abraham. I recognize that you are kind of like Ishmael. You are the one who was kind of brought into this world to enact God's plan and man's power. But when I'm talking about children of Abraham and the true father that Abraham is, we're talking more about Isaac, the one who came as the child of promise. That when God said, Sarah will give you a son that God meant it, that he was serious and perfectly able to do so. This is, comes down to a matter of trusting in self, and we have the same problem, don't we? We're not far. We are, we are far closer, I should say, rather, to trusting in ourselves than in trusting in God's word. So is there something other than Christ in which you abide, something else in which you build your home and say, this is, this is spiritually what I rest on, my foundation upon which I abide, I build my home here, because I've blank, because I know blank, because I am, because I do all these things. The reality of their spiritual heritage, again, as Jesus says, I know that you're offspring of Abraham, but you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you heard from your father. He's already starting to hint at this. You can see the progression. He doesn't just outright say, hey, you're all a brood of vipers. You're all children of the devil. He's going to get to that but he lets them rebut in verse 39. Abraham is our father. So they've gone from saying, we are Abraham's offspring to Abraham is our father. It's like, no, 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 we're not Ishmael. We're Isaac. We're the children of promise. We're the ones that, that believe God just like our father Abraham did. And then Jesus immediately turns it on them in 39. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. You would be showing where you truly abide whether you abide and make your home in God's word or in your own efforts. Verse 40, he says, now you seek to kill me. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works that your father did. Well, boy, I think that they at least know now who Jesus is referring to 
when he talks about their father, the reality of their spiritual heritage. It's not Abraham. Abraham believed God. You should be believing me. Again, this is another one of those points that you can say to the argument that, hey, Jesus never claimed to be equal with God. Explain this conversation. Why would Jesus say, abide in my word? Why would he say, if you were really Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did in this moment? Because God is speaking to you. He's clearly presenting himself to be equal with God, the Son of God himself. Yes, you are offspring, but you're not children. You have another father. In verse 41, they bring up their next, hey, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father. It's God. That's who our true father is. There's, There's nothing weird going on in what our heritage truly is because we are God's people. We are God's children. He is our true father. And at that point, Jesus cannot let stand. If God were your father, he says, verse 42, you would love me for I came from God and am here. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Here's the explanation. It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. As he said earlier, my word finds no place in you. You are not abiding in my word. My word finds no place in you, and you can't even bear to hear it. And this is kind of a scary thing when you think about that free moment that you have, and the first thought, perhaps the Holy Spirit so prompts your heart and says, hey, do you, do you want to read that chapter in the New Testament reading plan? Do you want to hear maybe something that I've said? I think the Holy Spirit's pretty gentle. I don't think it's an immediate, like, read the word of God. No, it's, it's a still small voice, right? And you have that moment, and you go, yeah, I do have some spare time, but I'd really much rather do this with my time. Lord, I know I can come to your word, but, but I, there's only so many hours in the day. I only have so much sunlight. I mean, that, that cloud is, is looming. I need to get this work done before. It may, in fact, show where we truly abide if we are those who cannot bear to hear his word. It's a scary prospect, but it's something we need to take seriously. Jesus says, Abraham's not your father. God can't be your father. And the revelation in verse 44 here, you are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. What's he talking about when he says beginning? What's the Bible ever talking about when they say beginning? Genesis 1, right? Well, let me just say Genesis 3, right? In the beginning, God created Genesis 1, but the fall, where the devil first shows up. How is the devil a murderer? He lies, as Jesus says here. He speaks out of his own character. There's no truth in him. And through that lie, he brought death. Not he himself. Sin is the one that brings death. Sin is the thing that brings death. The wages of sin is death. But he shows here that their actions don't line up with Abraham. They certainly don't line up with God. They line up with the devil, the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve and tricked them into a false heritage, tricked them out of the heritage that they had with the Lord. Now, if you're thinking a lot of this, it's really easy when we come to the conflict portion of the passage to just in our own minds say, no, I believe Jesus. I know I really believe him. And that's good. You know, have that confidence But be reminded, again, I know I've been talking about 1 Peter a lot today. I didn't do that on purpose. I only had one quote on my notes here for him. 1 Peter 5, 8, though, this is a very, very important passage in how we understand who our enemy truly is. Peter tells us to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
Peter said that in a letter to the church, in a letter to Christians. It's in a letter to Christians whose father is God. If Satan is not your father, praise the Lord. If you have your father is God, then that's great. You're secure. Because whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. They can't be unfreed from the life that Christ has given for them. But this adversary prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Still someone we need to take seriously. Still a matter of our previous slavery to sin. And our decision moment by moment to walk in that true discipleship, to walk in that freedom, to show that we truly abide in Christ, or to be warned that perhaps we abide somewhere else. Jesus' remedy is clear. It is not a matter of us becoming ultimate spiritual warriors, overcoming our adversary, breaking our own bonds, but simply believing in the Son. Believing in the Son whom He said at the beginning that if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. The slave does not remain forever in the house. This is a great illustration here of a household that is run presumably by the Father, obviously, here, right? And that there is a son and there's a slave. And the son belongs in that home. But the slave doesn't belong in that home, only for a certain time. And it may be, in fact, it truly is, we see from God's words, testimony, that, that often within Christian communities, there are those who are sons and daughters. And there are also those that are still bound in slavery to sin. Christ wants to break those bonds. He's the only one who can truly do that. What can a slave do to free himself? The son abides forever, and he's the one who sets people free. We cannot be free until we know the truth of God's word to us. He set us free at the cross. This truth is the foundation and the final piece of salvation. It's the beginning and the end. The gospel is not for Christianity 101. It's not for kids' Sunday school. It's for daily life. It is where you abide, where you make your home in the good news of what Jesus has done. Coming to church and hearing me say, Jesus died for your sin, so that if you believe in him, you'll be given new life, and you will live eternally with him one day and belong to him. That is a good moment to sit in. But you need to preach the gospel to yourself, I would say even again today if not tomorrow, and then the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Because, yeah, the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour someone, but my flesh also would like to make contrary choices to where I truly live. The world would love to call me to something else. And moment by moment, I need to cling to the one who sets me free, my true anchor, the son who alone can set us free. By his choice, not ours. By his authority, not ours. By his grace, not by our merit. An undeserved favor granted by his blood. Granted by what he's done. And, and again, he says that the person who's set free is set free indeed. There's a confidence that Christians should have. Yeah, yeah, we need to be wary of our adversaries. Sees, you know, multiple, right? This, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they're at us, trying to pull us away from where we truly abide. But we have a sure confidence. Whoever set free is free indeed. No claim on the life of the one for whom Christ's life was laid down. Jesus said in verse 28 of 
chapter 8 earlier here. He said to the hearers that were rejecting him, he said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. He's speaking to non-believers there, but believer, hear it as well. When you remember what Christ has done, when he was lifted up in your place, that is where faith grows. That is where you truly make your abode in Christ, where you settle it down. When you, you say, this is where I'm going to live and nowhere else. The Son brings us into this sanctuary, this safe place to live, while the world, the flesh, and the devil are after us, seeking to devour us. There he calls us to his word again and again for a f- fresh supply of grace. He calls us for, to freedom from sin, freedom from our slave master. No longer will our practice be sin because we live in a different house, because everything is changed through what Jesus has done. So if that's all true, then we need to leave this place and know that through his word, through abiding in his word, we can, by his spirit, walk in freedom. And walking in that freedom, I think, makes a point for us to really ask this this question, actually three questions. First of all, how do I know I'm a true disciple? Secondly, how do I live as a true disciple? And then lastly, how do I remain a true disciple? Because I think Jesus gives all of that to us here in this passage. I'm just going to sum it up here in closing. Tim's illustration again last week, I really liked it. I think I've already referred to it three or four times. But when we believe at this shallow level, like the hearers did in verse 31, 32 rather, where they say, hey, we, hold on, we don't need to be set free. We're, we're not willing to accept the next thing you have. It's as if we have accepted Christ as the anchor, but we haven't tied the rope. And so we've thrown the anchor overboard and nothing happens. But true disciples, in contrast, do a handful of things. Just trace this through this passage, verse 30 through 47 again is what we read. First of all, true disciples abide in the word of Christ. There it is. They make their home in God's word. What does that look like? Jesus explains it. Does my word find a place in your heart? Is there a place for God's word inside of your life? Not just saying, I downloaded the app, it's on my phone and it's in my pocket. This is where scripture memorization comes in and is so important and is something that I know we all, including myself, struggle with so much. Because how many other song lyrics would you love to just evict from up here, right? So many songs from your past, you're like, I don't even like that song anymore. I would love to just put scripture in here. Abide in the word of Christ. Uh, Spurgeon has a great quote on this. He says, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. Do you live in the Bible? I don't mean live in it. I don't mean just that it's a part of your life, but that if you didn't have this book, if you didn't have the app on your phone, if you didn't have whatever way you get God's word, would your life look any different? True disciples would be dramatically changed to not be able to abide in the word of Christ. Secondly, the next step of that, if you abide in my word, you will what? You will know the truth of the word. God does not intend for you to have some foreign book that you carry along in your life that you have no understanding of whatsoever. He wants you to know the truth of it. It's not a Rubik's cube. It's, it's a letter that he's written to you that he, by his spirit, wants to reveal the truth of as you study it and as you grow in it. So those who abide in the word of Christ know the truth of the word, and they are set free from slavery to sin. They become daughters and sons. 
and are accepted as they abide in the word of Christ. We're not strangers. We're not visitors in God's house. We're children. They have God as their true father, the next thing. This was a big point of contention in this passage. They said, God is our father. And Jesus said, unless you abide in my word, unless you accept me, how can you truly say you have the father? Number five, they love Jesus. If God was your father, Jesus says, you would love me. Is there affection for Christ in your heart? As a real person, not talking about like how you read a good book or watch a good movie and you know you use it for sermon illustrations for the rest of your life, but an actual affection for the person of Christ, not just that that was a nice story and it gives me warm, fuzzy feelings, but that at the place of my heart, there is a realization that God loves me and that in response to that, as John says in his epistle, we love him because he first loved us. And then lastly, Jesus says that true disciples hear the word of God. Whoever is of God hears his word. The reason why you don't hear, he says to the non-believers, is because you're not of God. True disciples hear, and that hearing is not just a hearing like, yep, gotcha, sound entered my ear and went out the other and we're done. Again, this morning, we, it, was, it was ironic, we opened up to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. God tells his people, hear, O Israel. The Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not a matter of just simply hearing and absorbing information, but obeying, of walking in obedience. And by the Spirit, you can do that. Sin is terrible. Yes, we will probably sin again before Jesus takes us into his kingdom and sin is no more a problem. But sin can and should be avoided in your life. And it's avoided by obedience to what God has called you to do. Not just focusing on what you're not supposed to do, walking around and making sure you don't step on a crack, but rather saying, Lord, what is it that you've created me for and walking in that? To be a living testimony to the goodness of this Christ that you know and love, who has set you free and in whose word you abide. Christian, take warning from this passage, but also take comfort and take confidence and take hope, a living hope. Because from first to last, the rope is tied to the anchor. You were not in charge of that part. Christ was. He made sure that the rope was secured so that the anchor could be sent down and you could be kept from first to last. We continue worshiping with that kind of confidence as we sing of Jesus as our true living hope. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the effective power that it has outside of how we necessarily understand it. But through, we see, we see through the way we receive it. Lord, I pray that as we finish up our worship service, even now, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would reveal the depth of our need for Christ. And that we would cling to the one whom we know and whom we love because he first loved us. Because he's brought us in out of slavery to sin and into sonship to you. To be sons and daughters. To enjoy all the benefits of what Jesus enjoys as being your son. We thank you that we can share in that and put our hope in it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.